You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, Episode 30. Today we're speaking with special guest Peter Giganti on the importance of touch in paediatrics. Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fee Gitchum. And today our guest is Peter Giganti. Hi Peter. Hi Fee and hi Claire. It's great to have you with us today, Peter. Peter has trained in shiatsu therapy before pursuing studies in Chinese medicine, both in Australia and in China. He's been in private practice for over 28 years with a special interest in children's health and has conducted many workshops and lectures on Chinese medicine paediatrics in teaching programs and seminars. Peter uses the physical medium of tactile therapy based on shiatsu and paediatric tuina as the basis of his work with acupuncture and Chinese herbal medicine. Peter has also been involved with the Victorian Chinese Medicine Registration Board and the Chinese Medicine Board of Australia. He is also a past president of the Shiatsu Therapy Association of Australia. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the show, Peter. Uh, thank you. Nice to be here. And yes, it's great to finally have you here. We did go through quite a lot of effort to get the technology for this episode up and running, so here we are. And today we're talking with Peter about paediatrics and the importance of touch. Peter sent me a wonderful sentence which I'd like to start with, which is, direct human contact is a primary mechanism for the young body to learn and respond to the new world around them. Can you talk to us about that, Peter? Sure. Uh, what we know from uh, various neurological studies is that the limbic system is first activated uh, during gestation and it's the primary means by which the fetus is receiving signals and mediating its physical responses and its various physiological states of deep sleep, of activity, uh, responding to stresses and being alert and wakeful and still and taking in information. All that happens in the limbic system. And so um, uh, uh, from birth, the first first minutes of the child's birth, it's in its most optimal state of receptivity to the signals that through which that limbic system is going to start to regulate its responses to the environment and to the internal state. So it's really quite fundamental uh, before other faculties start to kick in, before the eyes open, before the, 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 the nose starts to take odour, the first thing is feeling. And so what we know is that um, uh, when uh, a child, a, a newborn child is taken to the mother's chest and lays face to face in the mother's chest or even for the father for that matter, research shows that really the response is the same but uh, or virtually the same. But when the child is taken to the mother's chest, these signals uh, immediately start to mediate the child's physical state. 
the body temperature regulates itself, uh, the child switches to a alert passive state, that is it's taking things in, it calms down and it reaches this kind of limbic resonance with the mother's state which is um, uh, typically in a kind of a bliss state, in a loving state. So the first signal the child gets is this feeling of love, of empathic resonance, feeling good. And this uh, limbic resonance is the basis for sharing deep emotional states and for developing empathy and for the beginning of learning. You know, the word educate comes from the Latin educare, which is really to learn about love. And so the primary education of the newborn infant is learning about love through physical contact. That's such a beautiful way to describe it and um, it's something I can, I can relate to as a parent that, um, that you see in your child, even as they start to grow older, that they still really need that, that touch, that sense of touch and that contact with, um, you know, particularly with the parents as a way to help them continue to regulate. Like kids, as they get older, still need that input to be able to help regulate the limbic system. Yes, well, of course, the limbic system doesn't stop being receptive. It just gets layered with other resources and other faculties, but it continues to work. So, of course, there's all sorts of reasons why a newborn infant may not get that initial contact. There may be <coughs> preterm children um, where medical supervision and intervention is required, but even with preterm children, once that contact is introduced, a whole lot of things start to regulate and the body starts to um, send the signals that uh, improve the absorption of nutrition, to start to develop growth, to regulate body temperature. Often in preterm children, uh, body temperature regulation is very difficult. Um, in the same time, preterm children lose weight and managing weight and managing nutrition is a primary concern of uh, uh, neonatal care. So when this contact is introduced, and even if it's only for 10 minutes or 30 minutes a day, experiments show that the child starts to regulate through that. And so of course the ideal is that a newborn child is given that immediate contact. Uh, it, it, it uh, synchronizes the senses, the smell starts to come in so it associates touch and odour together <clears throat> and is able to begin to differentiate feeling, that ability to empathise, to feel with. Um, but we, we can continue to learn that throughout life really, uh, but as I said, in the infant, where the other faculties aren't developed, this is the primary system. This is the basis for how the body harmonises within itself, regulates itself, manages stress, starts to take information in uh, and trigger, even at the cellular level, the mechanisms for growth and development. So we know when that's not there, when the child is instead in a stress state, both in fetuses and in newborn infants, 
Uh, we can see even in the bones, there's something called Harris lines that happen in the wrist where the bones stop growing so well when the child is in a state of stress. And we know that those same things can reverse and the growth, normal growth and accelerated growth or regulated growth can start to happen when touch is introduced. So I think it's something that really belongs to all of life um, and continues to cultivate us and continues to be able to uh, develop deep connection and really, well as the theories go about limbic resonance, it is the basis of relations, social relations, how we relate to others. Mm, that information is just so beautiful, you know, um, there's so many stories about there of uh, newborns not doing very well and then they make such a quick recovery or improvement with the kangaroo method of just being placed skin to skin on their mother's body and I really look forward to this information about touch becoming more deeply known in, in all types of medical systems. I was just reading an article today by a doctor who through research of the limbic system and observation had noted that when children are unwell they become more touchy and require more touch because when they get that physical contact their body becomes more efficient at producing it. And he uh, explains this to parents who want to understand why their children get clingy when they're not feeling well. Well, I guess uh, because we're talking about resonance, we're also talking about the parents, the touchers as well as the touched. So that uh, other studies have shown that with uh, depressed mothers, for example, being able to engage in direct uh, physical contact to massage, uh, infant massage, also helps the mother, helps the breast milk flow, helps the mood and then helps the child start to accelerate that growth and come into a more alert state. So it's both ways and this is what this sort of resonance or synchrony is really all about. What I find really fascinating is that all of these are kind of modern experiments, modern studies, modern theories. Um, but it's, it's interesting to note that even in early Han or pre-Han time, we had scholars like Dong, Dong Jong Chu who were saying, well, there's this uh, sympathetic or empathic or complementary resonance uh, that happens in the newborn child that picks up from the environment. And you know, there's an expression in Chinese medicine that says, her way gui, to harmonize is uh, a lifelong need. So. The implication of that is, okay, to purge, to clear heat, to tonify, to reduce, to tonify this, to strengthen that. Uh, these are all short-term games. It's sort of a matter of adjusting things when the body is unable to do it by itself. But harmonizing is something we need all of our life. And the basis for this capacity to harmonize with both the external environment and to harmonize all of the different systems inside is mediated first and primarily through touch. So and we're not talking about the light tickling touch, the light gentle stroking with the, you know, like a feather. We're talking about firm contact, like a, a, like a, 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 a a dog would lick its pups after it's born to clean off all of that membrane and 
um, activate the, the, the puppy. This happens across species. It's, the limbic system is not a, a peculiarly human structure of the brain. This is something that is primal. We see it across the animal kingdom. Touch is primary for this ability to start to harmonise with the world into which the child is born. And I think that's a miraculous and wonderful thing. And it's so instinctual as well, like for, you know, for new parents to, to not want to put the child down, really. I mean, they're exhausted and, yes, they need to sleep, but that instinct to be holding the baby and to not be having the baby sort of lying on its own is really, well, for, for me and my husband just seemed to be really ingrained and to come really quite naturally but yet then you're also conflicted because a lot of the current medical advice is, you know, particularly around SIDS and, um, and say, sleeping practices that parents are encouraged to leave the child on its own and specifically away from physical contact with the parents and, you know, when the child's sleeping that, um, you know, there's a whole host of um, requirements that need to be looked at. How do you, how do you encourage the um, in your practice, the parents, how do you encourage them to, uh, I guess, navigate those conflicting ideas and those conflicting approaches? Well, as I was saying earlier, you know, it is not necessary to have constant touch, you know. Um, uh, in, in the first experimental studies about this, Often touch was only for 10-minute sessions, two or three times a day was sufficient to activate these systems, to accelerate growth, to mediate the hormone exchange, to activate the immune system. It is not necessary to be in constant contact. Um, studies of indigenous cultures have shown that really um, parents are often too busy collecting food, preparing food, to be in constant contact with their child. The task is shared. So, there's all kinds of levels of contact from uh, the, the more distant people who might just hold or grasp or pat to the mother who's breastfeeding, uh, to the siblings who might wrestle, to the uncles and aunties and grandparents who might hold and play. All of these, all of these kinds of touch are important. And in, a, in a sense, it's a language. It's the first language of the human is the language of touch. So I think um, what we tend to do in this kind of reductionist scientific, so-called scientific methodology is we sort of say one thing, oh, if we do too much of that one thing, something's going to happen. Well, of course, according to Chinese medicine, that makes absolute <coughs> sense. We need to have lots. We need to have a range of different things. A child also needs to be able to be in a rested state, to be not stimulated, to be able to sleep, to be able to just be active on its own. You know, and I, uh, it's really interesting when they talk about um, uh, research into doulas, for example. In a sense, a doula is mothering the mother during her labour, being there totally, contacting, eye-to-eye -eye contact, all of these things. Um, and, and at some point, the mother uh, the, in labour just wants to disconnect from that support person and focus on her own internal resources and do what it needs to do. Now, when you think about 
um, and you've had a child, when you you see a child sometimes when the bowels start to move, they sort of they're disconnecting and they're just somewhere inside themselves while they sort out what's happening here and allow that to happen. So there's a movement inward and outward. But this capacity to regulate is what I'm talking about and that that is um, uh, facilitated by physical contact. It does not mean that contact has to be contact, uh, constant and you could say that in some ways if that's overdone of course something will be out of balance because these other phases of the child's state also need their space. So we don't need a lot of time, we don't need constant time, it can even be a little bit of time and then it can increase. We can't always create an ideal condition where we say, now this is where I think um, uh, movements like attachment parenting um, uh, get one-sided and too focused and of course things go to an extreme and then you start to see when it goes to extreme it goes the other way, something else happens. I think um, that's a really good point that you make that, um, you know, the, the infant has their own sense of how much, how much contact they need with the parents. Our, um, our experience was, was um, you know, we were getting very clear messages from our daughter by the time she was eight weeks old that, you know, she just wanted to be left alone when she was sleeping. She didn't want anyone else in her room. She wanted to be in her bed. She didn't want to be in our room or in our bed. And that was really clear from eight weeks old that, um, you know, she really had a very clear sense of what she needed. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think, you know, we need to recognise that there are different states and an infant from the very first beginnings needs to move through these different states. I guess my point is that touch assists the child to be able to self-regulate. And that's the point. So we know that, say, a preterm baby, if its body temperature is too low, then being up against the mother allows actually the mother's body, in response to that, increases like a radiator, turned up the thermostat to allow the child to uh, get up to a normal temperature. And as the child comes up to a normal temperature, the mother's body then cools down. And the and the baby then gets uh, stabilizes at neutral body temperature. Um, it's not a matter of just heating and heating and heating and heating. It's that now this is a natural system. You know, uh, uh, it's what organisms, these human organisms, are doing to each other. They're regulating, and that doesn't mean one state keep on doing, keep on doing it until you get the desired outcome. It's do it and then pull back inward and outward, ascending and descending. I mean, this is basic Chinese medicine theory of qi. And this is what we see and this is what these studies prove. And again, this is where it constantly amazes me, the deep insights from Chinese medicine. And then suddenly when someone does some research and announces, oh, this is something that happens. Well, of course, if we trusted what we know out of this long and deep, wise tradition, we'd say, well, we already knew that. But it's regulating, regulating, uh, not just, and that's why um, that her way way is so important. We don't just tonify, 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 tonify until we get the desired outcome. That's not the point. If you just tonify, tonify, obviously something that needs to discharge and empty can't discharge and empty because it's getting filled up all the time. We need to fill, we need to empty, we need to warm, we need to cool, we need to be active, 
and we need to be passive. We need to be at a state of rest and we need to be in a state of uh, passive alertness, taking things in, and we need to be physically active. This is what happens in a, in a child's state. And when something unusual happens, something unexpected happens, some stimulus that is not previously recognised, then the child also has to have another state, alert stress. What's that? What's going on? Who's that? What's that face in front of me? Whose voice is that? What's that strange smell? The child also has to be able to have that state too. The point of regulation is that it doesn't tip over the edge and doesn't get stuck there. It's able to come back to that passive alert state and say, okay, now I'm sort of adjusted to this new stimulus. And that includes uh, being quiet as well as being active. It includes noise and activity as well as quiet spaces. It, it means those familiar people and the people who are teaching in that primary lesson about love, the, um, the parents, uh, and it also needs gradually to be introduced to things that are less familiar, a little bit challenging. Oh, what's this? How do I deal with this? Without being overwhelmed by that. And the reason why it can be not overwhelmed is because this capacity to regulate. How would you put that into an approach for a Chinese medicine practitioner working with children or babies in terms of how you initially approach the beginnings of that relationship with the child patient? Well, um, you know, if, if it's a, an infant or an older child, uh, for me, it's always important to make physical contact, uh, to ground in a material experience this new relationship. So if a child, and in a way, we often, I often find myself um, kind of modelling this for parents who don't know how to do it. Um, so child comes into a space, into the therapeutic space, of course you need to have conversation about why they're there, what's going on, what are the signs and symptoms, what's the history, you get a chance to observe and take in what's going on in the child, how they behave, how they look, but also how they interact with the parents. And then at some point the, my direction needs to go to the child and I make physical contact. Of course, Palpation is, is essential in treating children at any rate because uh, verbal discourse is often a distortion, whether it's from the parents because they have their own hopes and anxieties or perspectives or inexperience or, or um, uh, judgments, um, and the child may not be able to communicate in any coherent sense what you really want to know. Um, so uh, palpation is a primary diagnostic system for a start. Now you can't palpate just by poking and prodding. You know what what studies have also shown is this is the state of um, uh, parents in a state of stress. They tend when left alone with their children that's the first thing they do. They don't know how to how to touch firmly. So when you have a parent coming into a clinical situation and they are in a state of stress they don't know how to touch either. So uh, in the same way, uh, we can introduce that touch not by 
embracing the child, giving them a hug, not by doing deep tissue massage or something, or getting into their abdomen or all the back shoe points. Start with the hands and the fingers. And this is what uh, uh, indigenous societies do. Uh, when they introduce new people, uh, other people outside that immediate family unit, they tend holding the fingers, squeezing the fingers, uh, squeezing the hands, might go to the wrists, the arms, even the, the, the feet, uh, the lower legs, the upper legs, the trunk comes last. So it's like a, a physical introduction to the child is from the extremities. Um, and that way the child says, aha, uh -huh, this is how you touch, uh, this is, okay, you're far enough away, you're not an immediate threat, you're not intruding into my, if they could think this way, not intruding into my physical space. And then they can then say, oh, it's not so bad, it's, it's not stressful anymore. And then, so, looking at the hands, you know, looking at the feet, even the head, and then I'd move the child onto my treatment table. I think it's important to ensure for a Chinese medicine practitioner, you're not an uncle or an auntie or a cousin or a mother or a father to the child, you're a doctor. Um, and at the same time, the child is mediating what is this new relationship and you're defining that relationship. Uh, so in most cases, unless the child is so attached and fearful that moving onto the table is an anxiety or a stress, in which case they're better off staying attached to the mother until they get less stressed. When I move the child to a table, I start with those things uh, at the extremities, looking at the hand, show me your fingers, show me your thumbs, look how big your hand is, look how big my hand is, you know, those kinds of things. Um, make that contact firm, confident, not light, tickling, touch. In fact, that produces a different kind of, um, uh, uh, say, a kind of a stress state, if you like, an alert. Oh, what's happening? This is a high level of stimulus. I'm not sure what to do here. Laugh, cry, uh, shy away. Am I enjoying? This is a kind of a, um, if you like, at a physiological level, this is like a stress state. So a tickling or a light sensation is not what you want to do. You want to be clear, confident, um, uh, firm enough, uh, holding enough with enough pressure uh, a, a, in a regulated way that's not sharp, obtrusive, irregular, but rhythmic and smooth and become familiar. And this way your parents see this going on and also at the same time they see what's happening to the child who, who will whether they like it or not, even the child is crying and protesting. Their, you know, their mother's making them do this kind of thing. Um, they might carry on crying a bit, but you can feel their bodies. I, I, I can't tell you how many hundreds or even thousands of times I've felt the child, even while they're protesting, their body sort of sinks in. Instead of me going to the child, their body's coming to my hand over and over again, even before their behaviour reflects it, their body is doing that, their body starts to respond and as the body starts to respond, then the child follows that response. You know, they forget, they forget that they were protesting. So I think in clinic we can use touch even in the formal sense by diagnosis, 
by introducing ourselves to the child, not just talking to the parent, but making direct contact. Um, this, the limbic resonance uh, we were talking about earlier uh, is also facilitated by eye-to-eye -eye contact. And the same thing that, you know, in the uh, doula experience for a labouring mother, uh, the doula looking at the mother, maintaining eye contact, keeps this state, keeps this attention, keeps this this uh, sympathetic resonance, if you like, uh, going. So with a child making contact, being direct with them, uh, talking to them, holding them, touching them, not pretending anything, not sneaking in your hands to check something out before they protest too much, but actually doing it and being in charge because if you are centred, if your shen is calm, if you are still, that's the strong cord and the string of the child will resonate to that vibration, not the other way around. If we get caught up in the child's distress, then we're resonating with the discordance in the child. So I think that no matter what's going on in a child's behaviour, uh, and you know, uh, for anyone who's around children a lot, we know they pull our heartstrings. You know, that's that's kind of genetic and and evolutionary response. If we if we get swayed by the child's behaviour into their state, then we're unable to proceed really effectively. But if we're able to maintain a state, keep a smile on the face, keep looking at the child, not shying away when they pull their hands away, continuing it on, being calm, being consistent, being rhythmic, the child starts to vibrate to that. The child starts like a moth to a flame, come to the shen of the practitioner and bask in that light, in that glow. Oh, I like this state. This is good. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and parents see that. You can't fail to recognise that when you watch that. Mm. So this is like an entrainment by the Shen. Yeah, I think that I think that's absolutely right. Uh, absolutely yeah. right. And I think you know we know, you know, and we're trained that of course being of calm mind, stilling your mind, calming your breath before you do acupuncture, all this kind of thing. This isn't just some abstract idea or some spiritual practice. This is this is a, a sympathetic resonance at work, and you are the stronger and the deeper string, and the child will just vibrate to that if it starts to feel it. Uh, and this mm. is, you know, it's not organs functioning, um, uh, it's the Shen, it's the spirit of the child, you know, and that spirit is fragile, it's blown around like a candle in the wind, you know, um, another famous scholar talked about that, when a child is born, it's like bubbles floating on water or like a candle in the wind. You know, so that's why the shen of the child should be protected and not overly disturbed until it becomes firmly planted. You light a candle and at first you see that candle until the wax is melting and there's enough heat there, it could easily go out. It's sort of the flame goes down, it's only the wick burning and then slowly the wax starts to melt and starts to feed the flame and it's not the wick burning anymore. And it's the same with the newborn child. At first, that flame of the Shen is, is fragile. It could be easily distinguished, extinguished. Uh, and then gradually, if it's not disturbed, if it's not blown out by a gust of wind, gradually 
it starts to consolidate and become strong. But it needs that protection at first. And if that's, like we know, one a strong flame near a weak flame makes the weak flame burn brighter. And that's what we are as practitioners. That's what at the, the effective function of our uh, Shen state is to a child in practice. And it's so it, it's so important um, that you mentioned before about the the parent being there as well, and that you know you're trying to simultaneously develop rapport with both the child and the parent, and that really when you're you know when you're confident and when you've got that calm reassurance within yourself, that that using that as the main language, really by doing that you are. You, you you are developing rapport with both the parent and and the child. You don't necessarily need to use words too much because the parent is picking up on those cues, even though they don't necessarily they're not necessarily doing that consciously. No, that's right. And I think if we um, you know if the child is uh, finding it difficult, they're actually in a stressed state. They don't know how to respond. Um, then often the parents, and you know, see this a lot, they're, they're uh, over-comforting, they're reassuring the child, they're reasoning with it. It's okay, darling, it's all going to be over quickly. Don't worry, he won't hurt you, all of that kind of stuff. And if you start talking to the parent, you're actually moving your attention away from the child so that the verbal language in that direct contact stage has got to be secondary. It may pass some commentary on what's going on but not responding and engaging to the, to the verbal language. It's, it, the language is going on in the hands. Now, I, I found it really interesting um, having studied Shiatsu and having this kind of Zen influence, you know, that we'd be in this solemn state and everything would be quiet and peaceful and you give this rhythmic Shiatsu in a concentrated um, state, grounded. And then I went to China and I was working in a Qigong department and uh, my favourite doctor there, she used to chat away, da, 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 da. Now, I couldn't really understand her Chinese that well and she had a stronger accent and my Chinese was not that good. So I spent a lot of time watching her hands and I could see that even if she was responding and someone was talking to her, her hands were, were doing the primary language. It wasn't the talk that was going on. That was all superficial and just like a breeze fluttering in the air. It was the hands were constantly communicating. And, uh, you know, again, that ability just to be a distance enough, just to see that, was a really potent lesson for me, to see that, you know, this kind of uh, Zen form was an exterior form. But what was really important is whether accompanied in that exterior form or not is this uh, Zen form in the hands, this connection, this groundedness, this constancy, this safety that firm touch can give to say, I've got you, it's okay. You know, and that's why I think we know uh, uh, touch is not is metaphorical as well as physical. It's we can be touched. You know, I'm often touched working with babies. I'm often touched by the response of children. I'm often touched by a state of despair. The that, that being touched is part of what goes through my hands. 
part of what the child's receiving is, ah, gradually you've got this sound, I've got this sound, our strings are in discord, but slowly, slowly we're coming together in some kind of harmony together. And then the child's in the state that is in this, again, uh, passive alert state, receptive again. Not defending, not withdrawing, but, oh, now I'm paying attention. And when that happens, it's not the consciousness. You could say the Shen, yes, but the, the, the thinking mind is not doing this. This is the, 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 the Shen of the body. The Shen of the body um, comes into this state. And then when that leads, then all these other processes, the Qi, the blood, if you like, cells and um, uh, tissues all, and hormones, they all start to respond to that. That's what you know, microbiology studies show when people look at these things. Oh, how much of this, what happens to this hormone when in this state? What happens with that hormone in that state? What happens in the cell in this state? They all talk the same language. They just use different symbols. One talks about Chen, one talks about cells, but really we're talking about the same thing. You know, that there's a, ah, when the state is right and harmonised, then all these other activities and substances can do their proper job. And the proper job of a newborn child is growing, replicating, finishing off and completing the task of becoming fully human, as the Chinese would say. You know, finishing the development that it that can't be finished in utero, you know, because, you know the, the head just gets too big and it can't get out, it has to be finished outside the body. And that finishing is what we can facilitate. Now, of course, I think, you know, I'm talking a lot about newborns and infants and preterm and uh, embryonic and fetal development, but this process goes on. You know, I think the same thing happens with a 5 or a 7 or a 12 or a 15-year-old. And, of course, the same thing happens for us but uh, as adults. But... Uh, by then, a whole lot of systems have developed a complexity that's holding so many things in a stable state, even imbalance is held in a stable state, that it, it's harder to shift. Our minds get stuck. Our bodies don't want to change. Our cells have got their programming. They've been conditioned, that sort of epigenetic conditioning of uh, genetic expression it has been conditioned. That can change by all means, but there's a whole lot of mechanisms that have already uh, started to lock it down so that the individual can survive. And all of that stuff is survival. You know, I need to be in this state, otherwise I might die. I need to be stressed because something terrible might happen. But when we can introduce as early as possible uh, this, ah, just let's wait and see what happens. Oh, this is interesting then there's more receptivity and then more things can start to unfold because there isn't block, there isn't stagnation, there isn't stuckness. The body isn't arrested in what should be happening. So I think that's, you know, touch is not just for infants and babies um, or for uh, mothers for that matter, uh, but it's for all of us if we can overcome this kind of modern aberration of anxiety and fear of touching children. You know, I think it's a, 
you know, there are terrible consequences of that. I understand the reasons and the concerns about child safety, just like I can understand the reasons why we worry about uh, having a baby in bed with SIDS. But all of that makes us apprehensive, makes us nervous. And this is what's conveyed to children. I think that since touch is such a fundamental human, uh, animal, organic means of communicating within ourselves and between ourselves and the exterior, that we need it. We need to learn how to do this. This is how we, how we learn empathy. This is how we learn love. You know, the heart is a source of love. The heart houses the Shen. We learn this through touch. And if we haven't learned it, then really the only way we can learn it, you, you can't tell people about love. You've got to give them a feeling of it. You know, touch is always going to be important. Um, but of course, in a paediatric practice, you've got children in front of you, and they're particularly receptive to touch. And it's a tool that we know uh, has uh, been subjected, if you like, to technical refinement. It's not only touch because it's harmonising to the child. It's not only touch because it's a natural thing. But we find when we can direct that touch in particular ways, we can actually direct that effect to the area that needs that effect the most. And that's what really paediatric Twain R is about. How to do that in a way that evokes or amplifies certain parts of that response. So in a, in a Twain R treatment, we don't just do one thing. It's a number of things so that all of these different responses are put together and assembled like a herbal prescription. It's a recipe that together makes a balanced whole by, so, oh, we need to do this a little bit more, need to calm that down a little bit more, need to regulate that and help that. And then, <clears throat> uh, but all of this is subsumed, if you like, under this umbrella of the medium of touch. So I think the combination of this intuitive aspect, this loving aspect, this empathic aspect, and the technical refinement uh, that we have through techniques developed over a long time, through observation, uh, through, um, uh, uh, what would you say, um, a technical execution that's uh, 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 assembled in a way that is truly responsive to that um, effective diagnosis that's been achieved through the touch, like a, a biofeedback system. Touch gives you information, the information tells you where to go, telling you where to go, you do it in a particular way, and then you receive the feedback again, and slowly, slowly it comes into harmony. And that's really the objective of the Twain Art Treatment and why, I think, for babies and children, it's it's really ought to be uh, for Chinese medicine practitioners wanting to work with children. It's the primary thing to learn. Yeah, wow. It, it sounds quite obvious when you're talking about it, but it also seems to me that if you're also trying to assist the development of a child who has been through trauma or perhaps wasn't touched very much in their early, maybe the first year of their life or, um, you know, for any reason that touch being the primary modality within the therapy is going to create far more support for that development to catch up. That's right. 
it's never too late for touch ever. Mm. How do you how do you go about approaching? So, for example, with some children where touch can be quite traumatic for them, like what's your starting point there? Uh, well, again, extremities usually, uh, mostly, uh, but sometimes um, a safe place, you know, that most yank surface, the back. So it could be the upper shoulders. This is yep. an area that you know children can. You know, still maintain their defence. So quite often, you know, my hand goes to the back, um, and I make that firm contact. I'm not pushing. I'm not shoving. I'm not stimulating, but I'm making contact with my whole palm. And then I'd say, "Can I have a look at your finger, please?" And I'll start with an extremity like that, and I'll, say, and I'll turn over the hand a little bit, uh, and then slowly, say, oh. Uh, go to the wrist or take the whole hand or say, you know, thank you, can I see the other hand as well? And I might hold both hands and I'll, you know, be comparing them, squeezing one, squeezing the other, doing something like that. Uh, there's sort of an element of the magician in working with children. They don't quite know what's going on and you keep moving and you're doing this thing um, that's not too invasive. Uh, and if they're pulling away, then, you know, you back off again and you come in again, back off again, come in again and uh, and listen to the cues. I mean, if we're really in that uh, sympathetic resonance, then we're not overdoing it, we're not intrusive, uh, we're not persisting when the child can't take it. We need to be responsible. We also need to be the directors of what's going on. So, okay, you pull back and then you come at it again. Pull back and you come at it again. Pick up the, you know, if a young toddler or a, 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 an infant child, I'll take the feet. I'll say, oh, yeah. And it might only be three or five seconds. I'll grab the other one then and have a look at that and let it go before they have a chance to protest. And then I'll pick up the arm and raise it above their head and let it go. They haven't got time to protest. Then I'll keep moving like that. And then they sort of, and then they're in that, um, and this is regulated by, <laughs> in the language we were using before, the, the limbic system. It's not, not behavioural. This is feeling. So when you start doing that sort of thing, and the child's in this um, state of suspended disbelief. They're not quite sure what to do. They don't really like you, and they haven't taken you in yet. But um, once you start to touch, other things follow. And once you get them into that space, then you can keep going. And say, okay, well, let's go over here. And then, I, you know, if, if they're really attached or they're really nervous, I make sure the mother can bring them over, sit right beside the table. So I have the stool on either side of my treatment table. I make sure the parent is sitting on the other side. They can maintain contact if they like, but I still take charge. You know, it's, it, I, I can't be led by the child. I need to lead. And if a child say, no, that's enough, then that's enough. But I'll end it. I, won't, uh, I don't think it's helpful to let the child direct me. I'll take the cue from the child and then I'll make the decision that that's enough. I like the way that um, that you can that, that you describe that process of having the child participate in the treatment before they've necessarily decided that they're okay for... Um, you know that they, even if they are touch averse, I guess that they've yep. that they're giving their consent to participate in the treatment, and that their curiosity yep. about oh, what's he going to be doing next? Yeah, yeah. 
And is, yeah. are, are there any cues that you're looking for? Um, because, you know, we spoke at the very start in your introduction that you also practice herbal medicine. Are there any cues that you're looking for in, you know, whilst you're palpating and, and, and touching the patient? Anything that you're looking for that's going to help with your herbal prescribing? Um, absolutely. You know, um, and herbs are substances and they go to the substances. So we can say, um, first of all, when you're palpating, you're touching the body surface. So what's the texture of the skin like? Is it dry? Is it oily? Uh, is it stiff? Um, thick? Uh, is it elastic? Uh, these are all things that the, the blood nourishes, the body fluids nourish. And we say, oh, this is too dry. This is all stagnant. This is all congealed. These are things that herbs are going to help with. Is it too hot? Um, is it not warm enough? Is the heat not distributed well? Um, uh, so, and then, in particular, because uh, the middle jowl tends to be, you know, it's it's really the engine of that growth and development and, and touch uh, from the very first touch that a child has after birth in its mouth, the suckling, you know, the nipple going and getting squeezed into the upper palate, the, the gingival membranes uh, start to respond and draw in and the start, tongue starts to work and that activates that middle jowl. Now that's really important, that physical contact inside the mouth, that touch in there starts to activate that middle jowl. But the middle jowl suffers a lot, you know, um, uh, and, and, and compounded very often by the sort of richer diets, uh, the irregular feeding, uh, or the formula feeding, all the other things can happen, or simply the hard work of growth and development. So what I'm looking for um, is distension in the belly, a discomfort and aversion to touching the abdomen. Is it uncomfortable? Uh, is it hot? Uh, and we can feel that around the sides as well, around the waist and around the back. Um, and so I'm looking for those kind of things very often that's disturbed. Very often the simplest thing to do with herbal medicine is to gently guide the heat downward through the stool. And uh, I think, you know, I'd probably use that method, would use that method in at least 70% of the children that I see in the early stages at least, get that going again, get that qi mechanism going and since heat tends to rise and the yin is weak so it can't restrain it very well and the, so the stool can't go down and the heat dries and it tends to ascend, if you start just to restore that descending movement and gently guide the heat downward and out of the body, then the, the ascending and descending of the spleen and stomach can be restored. So I'm looking for those kinds of things for herbal medicine and that's probably you know, as I said, my starting point, certainly a majority of the time, that's my starting point. Sort out what's going wrong in the middle jam and what do I need to do there uh, and then I can decide, well, what will I use to do that? But mostly it's very similar things. No matter what the range of conditions, um, it's mostly similar things uh, for that first stage. So even if the skin is dry, it's been dried out because it's suffusing heat. Where is the heat coming from? 
is stagnancy, congestion, accumulation, blockage, or dysfunction of the spleen and stomach. Gently guide that out, and then the skin can start to get better. And then if you need to nourish the skin, you need to moisturize the skin, or you need to effuse the heat out of the skin, or get rid of the toxins that are accumulated, then you do those things after. So I'm looking for those things for herbal medicine. What are the concrete manifestations of that? If they're not there, the body feels fine, but the child is disturbed. Behaviour, sleep, night crying, teeth grinding, nightmares, anxiety even. Um, you know, heaven forbid I see children with depression. You know, I'm horrified really inside myself children suffering depression, but they do, then, okay, this isn't really herbal medicine. Yeah. Trainer is the first and primary part, and then acupuncture would follow with that. And acupuncture is very easy to include in a Twainer treatment, even if that's the core of the treatment. The acupuncture is only a small part of the execution. You know, the Twainer will take if you're treating for 25 minutes, the twain R will take 20 minutes, the acupuncture will take one or two with a bit of one after that. Are you just doing insert and remove techniques? Oh well, you know, of course that depends on the age of the child and the condition, so it's a bit, um, you know, simplistic to generalise totally, but we can say, generally, the younger the child, the more likely there's going to be very few points and insertion. I I still manipulate with my hand. I still want to feel something through my fingers. I want to not just feel the needle going in the body. I want to feel it make contact. But it may all be over in a second or it may take mm -hmm. two or three seconds or it may take ten seconds. Yeah, um, and then the older the child, as they get bigger, or the condition is more complex, or the need is great, then it may be more needles and it may stay longer. So I guess it's a spectrum, but you could say that the younger the child, more likely to have uh, non-retention of needle, and uh, maybe only one point, a single needle, uh, and from there, you know, you can increase it according to the age and the need and the acuteness or severity of symptoms and so forth. And of course, for some children, uh, they might be anxious or frightened or scared. And certainly if the mother is apprehensive or the parent, the carer is apprehensive about the needles, again, that good old sympathetic resonance, resonance uh, then the child's going to pick up on that uh, as well. But if the child really doesn't like it, then it's fewer needles. Uh, but I find that children start to like it. And if they, even if they don't like it, I've spent, um, you know, three, four, five, six, seven sessions before I even do it. Maybe at the fifth one, I say, okay, I'm going to stick it in my own hand here. My poor old hergu on my hand will get needled more than it really needs to. I say, see, there, there you go, look at that. Take it out. How about next week we do yours? And they usually will come in and say, okay, let me see what it's like. And then you need to have the technical proficiency not to blow it. You know, so <laughs> that's very disappointing. 
Um, and that, so in order to have execute that technical proficiency, you need to be confident and feel yourself that it's okay, that you're not doing anything wrong or that might harm the child. If you've even got that feeling inside you, the child will feel that. So you need to consider it if you're doing acupuncture on children as a completely normal thing to do. Otherwise, the child knows. And if the mother's feeling that, your feeling has to be stronger. That's okay. Oh, it's a funny feeling, isn't it? What was it, like a little mozzie bite or something? How would you describe that? No, hang on a minute. And again, they're in that passive alert, I'm not sure. Whenever you're giving acupuncture to a child, well, for me, whenever I am giving acupuncture to a child, I've got a firm hold of the body part. My other hand is holding, not in restraint, but in sending those messages. It's okay. I've got you. This is safe. And that triggers this response of um, passive alertness. Okay, let's see what goes on here. I'm not sure about this, but oh, oh, yeah, I don't like to have it all over. You know, you can do more then. I can really feel how much you've cultivated your own limbic regulation to be the strongest signal. Uh, just from being, just from so much study in this area and focusing on it and making it your work and practicing it every day, you know, it's even without touch or even eye contact in this case, it really does transmit on another level as well. That we, you know, we can all as human beings come into this resonance and sync up with the stronger signal. Yeah, um, yeah. I guess my um, my thesis here is that. You know, working with children is particularly important. Anyone who's interested in working with, any parent for that matter, uh, but if you're a practitioner and you're interested in children, these are really the fundamentals. Which makes it a, a bit, um, I won't say disappointing, but like something's missing when you, you know, uh, read pediatric textbooks that are focusing on diagnosis and treatment or which points or which formulas and things like this. And I think, well, how Without these other things there, it's very difficult uh, for a practitioner to develop the skills to be able to use all of that. If a child is in a uh, defensive state, in a, in a, if you like what, what I've called here a stress state, a stressed alert state, then the acupuncture is more difficult. Um, they're going to be more resistant to the herbal medicine. So you might have a really good formula that you think is perfectly appropriate, but how to do that? But if you can create these conditions, then all these other things are much easier to follow. Um, and unfortunately, it's something that's um, difficult to convey uh, in a textbook. I think this is really valuable for you know for so many practitioners because you know our training is all you know is predominantly around how to treat adults and people who can answer our 10,000 questions and you know we just don't have that same interface with a child they don't you can't have a child sitting in your consult room for you know an hour plus to kind of go through all those questions you've got to get you've got to get that information far more quickly and um, you know the way that you've described it today has just been um, you know really a, that's the missing link you can go to seminars and learn about you know, which herbs and which points and, you know, which nutritional interventions to use. But ultimately, you know, you need to get that 
um, that practical interface going in the consult room for for the whole thing to actually work. Well, I guess um, you know the last thing I'd say on that is uh, that it also gives the parents, who after all they're the ones who brought the child, they're the carers, they're the primary teachers of love, um, who if they had things in hand they wouldn't be there but something's not going right and by demonstrating these things and then by transmitting okay you can do this at home here I'll show you just do this um, you're also empowering them and you're giving them the tools the natural tools they don't have to buy anything they don't need any extra equipment they don't have to administer something else they can use it even if a child is really sick even if the acupuncture and the herbal medicine are really you would consider um, essential to a, to an optimal outcome parents can participate in that outcome themselves and I think that's a wonderful thing um, to be able to give something over like that because it's not only here's how to treat your child's constipation or to help them to get to sleep better or to improve their bedwetting or something like that. You're teaching them again, reminding them, um, uh, helping them to develop that empathic resonance in themselves. And that's for forever and for everything, not just for the baby and the signs and symptoms right then, but reminding each and every one of us, reminding those parents how important touch is and how powerful it can be. I think that's a great gift to, to give away. Mm, yeah. And as you were saying, it's very difficult to convey this in a textbook, but you have managed to transmit this. It's travelling upon your chi across <laughs> the internet today. <laughs> to your voice. And, yeah, and so, you know, I really think that a lot of our listeners will receive in their body on a physical level a knowing of what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much, Peter. Um, it, can, we, can we share with our listeners, you've got a, um, a practitioner training that you're going to be running next year? Will yes, you... that's right. Uh, uh, again, you know, from... My experience teaching and lecturing and standing in front of a, a group, and I love doing that, and I love uh, talking and sharing and showing, um, but I think the best uh, way to learn is uh, with the children there. And so um, finally, after many years of trying to get around and getting all the other busy things in my life out of the way enough to do it, um, I'm starting a clinical training program so it will be a community clinic low cost for the parents and families and practitioners can come and treat children under supervision of course in the beginning it's mostly observation and tutorial and discussion and case conferencing and then gradually get more and more hands-on so that they can get experience um, and uh, with confidence knowing there's someone uh, with experience to show them and to guide them and to reflect with them about what's going on. So that's what I'm going to be doing from next year. I'm, I'm in the process at the moment of, of building the space. I'm extending my, my clinic um, and uh, when that building is finished then I'll be uh, running that community clinic. That sounds like a great teaching method. And this is happening in Melbourne? Uh, outside of Melbourne, it will be on uh, at my property in the country. It's about an hour out of Melbourne, 
um, and uh, I considered that uh, very carefully and I figured, well, there's children everywhere that need the help and for a low-cost clinic, often people in the country are very poorly resourced and I happen to live there um, and it saves me the travel time and if people really want to learn uh, with me about that, then it's not too hard to get there uh, a day a week or half a day a week or so and come and do it. So that's where I'm going to be operating that teaching clinic. How do people get in touch with you if, if they want to join your program, your training program, how can they do that? They can find me on, at the moment I have a website, eastwesttherapies.net.au and they can look that up and they'll get details on that uh, or leave a message and uh, once I've finalised the program and the commencement date, anyone who has left any expression of interest, I'll contact them with details about it and they consider them whether they want to proceed with it or not. Great. So eastwesttherapies.net.au. Okay, we'll link that up in the show notes. Great. Thank you. Well, thanks again, Peter, for joining us today. I'd like to invite anyone that has any comments or questions to ask to make your comments in the thread under this episode on the Heavenly Chi Facebook page. And we look forward to uh, seeing you again next week. Thanks, to everybody. Our, thanks to our listeners. Thanks very much. And thank you to you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs>